BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is Ian David Diaz. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. My pleasure, my pleasure. Now, we're here to look back on a film that you made in 1999 uh, called The Killing Zone. You want to tell us why you got in touch about wanting to talk about this on the podcast for the listener? Essentially, um, one of my friends who produced the film, Julian Boot, he died um, recently. Um, He died of a... Um, of a brain tumor, okay. and um, sorry for your loss. You know, we've always fought to try and get this film noticed, and um, it really hasn't been noticed because what we achieved was um, something very unique for for its time. And I think it's about time that people knew about how we made this film. Mm-hmm. A bunch of nobodies, basically um, working class stiffs, that had really no connection to the, the British film industry, and we made this film. Um, and it almost killed us. <laughs> Before we tell, get into the details of it, how can people see The Killing Zone? They can go on um, my channel, which is the Rebecca Gold channel, mm-hmm. on YouTube, just type in Rebecca Gold, Rebecca Gold's web series, mm-hmm. and the film is on there. Um, it's the uh, director's cut because when it got released, um, uh, it wasn't really um, produced very well, especially on DVD and stuff like that. It was... Yeah, it just wasn't produced very well. So basically, I took it, and because of the AIs they've got now, I upscaled it and uh, and graded it the way it should have been and uh, put it out there for all to see. So when you say That's all to see, done. so people can just see it for free, or they have to pay for yep, it? Yep, it's for free. It's for free, yep. Brilliant. So we'll put a link in the show notes so people can do that at their leisure. Mm-hmm. Um, so to give, them, to give them an incentive, do you want to give a brief synopsis to what The Killing Zone is all about? Okay, so the Killing Zone is about a um, an assassin called Matthew Palmer, mm-hmm. and he has uh, three days to retire, and it's basically his journey through three stories told within one film, and how um, and how basically he gets in trouble <laughs> by trying to <laughs> by trying to complete those uh, three jobs. Basically, that's basically what it's about. Yeah, indeed, the classic. I'll retire after this, and then a load of yeah. un- <laughs> unbelievable obstacles get in the way that mean that retiring is not as easy as he as he first thought. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. You wrote and directed this mm. film. Um, yes. So for you, 
where, what was the kernel of the idea that, that, that got you going on what became The Killing Zone? Okay, so Julian and myself, we, um, we created a, a production company called The 712 Collective. Mm-hmm. It doesn't exist anymore because um, of time and, and money and stuff like that. We were working class um, people. We desperately wanted to be filmmakers, but it seems like the door was always closed for a thousand reasons, million reasons. Yeah. Um, and we decided to make a, to make a, 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 um, a short. So we made a short called The Interrogation, which basically is about these two, two guys that get interrogated by the mob because something went wrong. They're supposed to deliver something and something went wrong. Mm. And we, we made that for a thousand pounds. So we shot that in a, over a weekend and made it for a thousand pounds. So Julian said to me, it's time we made a feature film. And so the, the, the thinking was, let's make this short and make four other shorts and stick them all together. So that would cost us £4,000 and that'd be a feature film, right? Obviously. But it's a solid idea, but it, it, in theory, it doesn't work because making a um, feature film is a different animal to making a short. Mm. So basically, we wanted to raise money. So we were trying to find out how we can raise money, how can we let people see who we are and try and find finance for that, uh, uh, people who could fund the film. Right. But it was very difficult because we don't live in that circle. We don't live in a circle of, of people who have money. You know, we were just people that worked at Tesco's or, you know, Waitrose. <laughs> you know, that, that's the kind of people we were. Right. So what we decided to do is try and put an advert in a newspaper, but newspapers cost money to put an advert in. And so that idea didn't work. But then we came across a newspaper called Loot. This is 1997 at the time. Cool. And I so, don't know if you remember So we're, Loot. Pre, we're pre-internet. So yes, I do know Loot. Yes. Indeed. I yeah. found, I found so pre-internet. One of, right. I found one of my flats in there when, when, when I first moved to London. <laughs> so yeah, so we didn't have the internet. This is uh, 1997, I think. And um, we decided to put an advert in Loot. And so basically what we put in there was, if you want to be part of a film production and you have no experience whatsoever, call this number. That's what we put in there because it was free. Because Loot was like eBay, I guess. People selling shoes, you know, uh, want to rent out their flat, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. So we put an advert in there. And one weekend, the phone didn't stop. It just didn't stop. The phone kept ringing and ringing and ringing. And so this is, to cut long short, resort, this is how we sold it. We said, look, you can either take a thousand pounds and go on some stupid BBC course and learn nothing, or you can give us a thousand pounds. We can throw you in the deep end and you learn that way. Mm. Again, to cut long story short, 14 people said yes. One of them was a lawyer and we raised 14,000 pounds and we shot at Killing Zone in two weeks on Super 16, Super 16 film. Lovely. Yeah, and that's how we did it, basically. So, so, so that's, that's the practicalities of it and the motivation to do mm. it. So when you sat yeah. down at your desk to um, mm. to then pencil these three sto- these three interwoven stories about one man's uh, bloody bloody attempt to retire, um, yeah. what was what 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 was where was the idea for that coming from? Where did you start with that? Okay, so I'm a huge fan of um, of British movies, uh, particularly I love um, Michael Caine. And I saw a film called The Ipcris File, which is one of my favorite movies. I mm-hmm. love that film. And um, at the same time, I'm into comics 
and movies. And um, I saw I saw a, a, um, a comic book called Sin City, which Frank Miller had just released. I think it was around about that time. I'm not sure. Makes sense. And I fell in love with that. I fell in love with that kind of thing. The the film noir. Uh, I love the 60s look. I love the suits and stuff like that. So I decided to create a character that was like the character in um, in Ipcris file. Okay. So the character, yeah. So a character I created was a, a character called Matthew Palmer. And then the Ipcris file, the character's called Harry Palmer. <laughs> Indeed. No, I, 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 I get there's a heavy nod. You know, the idea of, of a hitman that's basically neat he looks neat from head to foot, you know. He, mm. the, you know, he he makes sure that every job is is meticulous, and he, you know, does his job and then just go, just moves on. Um, was was appealing to me, and as I said, the idea of having three stories uh, connected, woven woven in, also helps with the production because we weren't stupid. We realized we were up against um, an impossible task. Everybody told us we shouldn't do it. Um, but going back to the story, the idea of the, I created the three stories so that it will help in production as well. So the idea was Palmer, Matthew, would go through the three stories. He'd be the only actor that would go through the three stories. Yeah. Therefore, the other actors that were in the other three stories would only have a total of either three days or two days shooting, which, free, which basically doesn't lock them down for two weeks of a shoot. Right, so it just locks them down to the three days that we were shooting each story, or the two days that we were shooting each story. They just locked them down to that. Also, including the crew as well. So the crew, so like you'd have, I'd be have a sound man for the first story, have a second sound man for the for the second story, and maybe the third story. You know, so it wouldn't lock them down. So they could contribute for free because everybody was working for free, and not spoil their their um, you know, not. You know, you know, spoil their their schedule of actually mm. making money. So that's how it was arranged. But the idea was, but, but I was just writing, let me, Ian, just let me stop you there for a second. But I think for, yeah. for the for the for the first time filmmaker who's on the brink of doing their first film, that's there's a lot of advice mm. wrapped up in what you expect, what you described in in terms of the practicalities of you know knowing full well that you're taking advantage of people who are giving their time for free, but then you're making it as easy for them. To be able to do it, yeah, because of the way you've you've you're going to make the film. But but that's the idea, you see, because we mm. we, as I said, we weren't stupid. We, we look look, you could have all the money in the world to make a movie, but if you don't have common sense, then it's not going to happen. Right? Common sense is the key, and also time is always against you as well. It's always time when you're shooting on on sets. Time. Mm. So, I know you want to know how how I created the story. As I said, the idea was that I was in love with this whole idea of the sixties and and uh, Harry Palmer from the Ipcris Files and stuff like that, and I created this almost indestructible um, assassin stroke hitman. Yeah, he was so cool. You know, he you know he's got side parting. He's got glasses. You know, and and if you look at the three stories carefully, he he's he's his involvement's very minimum. He's just there to 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 kill someone and then move on to the next job. So the the three stories is about the character around. That's how I approached it, and also I approached it that it was only one location on each story, which will cut down on money as well. It right. wasn't bouncing around and and stuff like that. Um, you know, and mostly they were in one location. So so um, so, in a, so in a sense, you were writing for those constraints as much as you were. 
aware of those constraints are going to be important to the success of the production. Yeah, there was there's no other way to do it because we had to write to the constraints of the amount of money that we had, the amount of time that we had. So we had to we had to basically um, we had to we had to we had to think about those situations. Mm. As I said, you know, we 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 didn't we didn't just go out there with the the camera and just say like let's just shoot. We 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 had a shot list. You know, we we had um and most importantly of all is to have rehearsals. So if you're making a feature film and it's a two-week shoot, or whatever how long it is. Yeah. When you're on set, time is a killer. Time will, time will destroy what you're trying to do. So the only, the only, one, of the re, one of the ways to deal with that is to rehearse with your cast as much as you, as much as you can before you set foot on, on the set. Because mm. with rehearsals, um, <clears throat> once everybody knows where they're standing, once everybody knows what they're saying, um, once you set foot on the set, it's merely a formality, right? And I can concentrate on 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 making sure the the camera shots is what I want and stuff like that. When an actor comes up to me, which had happened on this film, and said, um, "Ian, I want to talk about motivation," I, I would say to them, "No, I don't want to talk about motivation because we spoke about this before. We spoke about this in rehearsals. I mm. told you, everything that was done in rehearsals, we're going to do now, right? So basically, get to your mark. We're ready to shoot." You know that kind of thing. So I was really tough on on the killing zone because I knew we were up against impossible odds. It, you know, we only had two hours sleep every night. Bloody hell! That, I mean, it was it was a nightmare to shoot, but everyone, my my core team was was uh, determined to get this thing done. You know, because we 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 wanted to prove that you know, uh, not only do you know rich middle class or upper class kids. Um, have the chance to make movies and we don't. We want to show them that we can make a movie and with very little money that we had as well. We're just as important as they are because mm. I couldn't afford to go to film school. In fact, no one I knew working on a set could afford to go to film school. I think a couple of people um, came, uh, were, went to film school, I think, but they were like... But, that, but, what, but what you've just described before is, is, a, is fairly canny because I remember I interviewed uh, Dominic Brunt who for his second film, Bait had a similar constraint to you where time was going to kill the film. So again, like yourself, he did he did some rehearsals, but he also made it clear to anyone coming on on the cast that, you know, I'm not interested in talking about different things. We're going to do it this one way and it's going to be, and that's going to be what we're going to achieve making the film. I can't be talking about what the character might do on this scene or that scene. We're going to hit your mark, mm. we're going to shoot the shot, and then we're going to move on to the next shot. You know, and so on and so yeah. forth. So I think I think what you what you what you hit upon there, you know, using your and it was great because I guess I guess you had the the ammo of we've done this, we've talked about this already. So any question you're asking me now, your time to ask was when it was for free. This is now not free time because we're we're in the shoot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as, <laughs> it is it is what it is. At the end of the day, you know. Mm. I mean, I tell you something that actually um, happened. On set, so the second day we were shooting, we were grossly over, um, over our time, right? And we were on this one set. We were in a, um, it was called Hartley's Jam, Jam, uh, Jam Factory. It was like a, it was like a, um, a big warehouse that we were in. And my first, who was the, probably um, one of the most, uh, was probably more experienced than um, most people on set. Mm-hmm. She worked for the BBC. She was the first. She worked for the BBC. 
and uh, she, uh, we were going over and she said, she pulled me aside and she said, Ian, we've got to stop. And I said, why? And she said, because the crew and the cast are tired and we can't just keep going because we need to stop. And, and, and I said, well, we need to shoot all this stuff before we leave this location. We, I can't afford to come back. And she said, no, you've got to. Look, let's shoot everything um, tomorrow. And then after everything's shot, we can come back. And I said to her, do you have the money so I can come back? And she said, no. And I said, well, I'm going to carry on shooting. And she got so upset that she walked off. And then I promoted my third as the first. <laughs> but the, the, point, the point I'm trying to make here is that when you're in that situation, you can't apply the rules of a, a big budget film to something like this, right? We all knew what we, what we uh, signed up for. Um, and if you want to bail out now. So for instance, when she walked off, I basically went on set. Uh, and it was like about, uh, I think it was like 85 people strong. I went and I stood on an apple box and I said, look, we're going to go to two o'clock in the morning. I said to them, look, if anybody wants to bail now, please go now. No, but we have to complete this. And none of them left. And so my uh, grip, Frank, wonderful guy named Frank, Frank Halliburton, he uh, got his credit card out and he brought all these bears and he, he, he Got the, he got the, all, all these bears in and wine and stuff, and everybody started drinking. So <laughs> at two o'clock in the morning, most people were drunk, but we got the shots done. Brilliant. So do you know what I mean? And that's just one of the examples of, of being determined to shoot this. Because I um, just off the side of it, I remember listening to Spielberg talk about Duel when he shot Duel, and he had 12 days to shoot Duel. Mm. And um, his, the, you know, he was like 21, 22, whatever. I can't remember, 25. And um, he used one stretch of road to shoot all that stuff. So he had like loads of cameras set up, whatever. And then, and then somebody asked him, look, you know, that was amazing what you did when you were that. And Spielberg said, you know what, right? And he said, I could not do that now. I could not do it. You know, even if, if I had the knowledge of I have now and go back, I couldn't do it. And that's, and that's the, that's the beauty of youth, isn't it? Mm. That, uh, you know, you think you can do it. You, know, you you just go ahead and do it, <laughs> you know, and, and this is what all of us were doing. We just, we didn't think about the bigger problem. We just thought, we just focused on what we could, what we could achieve within that time. And that helped as well, because there were a lot of people that complained and moaned, but they still stuck with the, with the project, mm. you know, and, and, and I think that was wonderful of them. Uh, to uh, uh, to to help us out that way, you know. When you were writing the three stories, you know, I have mm. to think back to a long way now. But but what do you remember? Because you've got you're juggling a lot of characters, and obviously you're trying to yeah. juggle three stories. What do you remember being like the most um, challenging storytelling aspects to that part of the process? Because obviously, what you talked about so far, I mean, it's all valid. But you know, we're talking a lot about the practicalities of making a film, but from for a writer listening to this, how, how did you, what was, what were some of the challenges for you bringing together this, bringing together the story on the page first? Okay. So, um, basically I did not know how to write a script around about that time. I, I did and I didn't, if you know what I mean. I'm far more, um, far more knowledgeable on the free act structure and, and, uh, and certain things that happens in scripts now. Yeah. So in those days I wasn't. So, the way I wrote in those days, which is probably the still the same way I write right now, is basically I have an idea in my head. I keep writing. I keep writing. It's like um, 
I don't know if you've ever been to acting class and uh, your teacher pulls out two students and puts them in the middle of the room and say, right, you're the husband, you're the wife, he's had an affair, go. And then they both make it up as they go along. Right. Um, because they've been set a parameter. And then the beauty of writing like that is that these wonderful things start happening. Like with, um, when I was writing, I wrote the last story first, right? And was, the last story is all about, um, about Matthew Palmer and about his girlfriend, mm-hmm. who was played by Nicola Stapleton from EastEnders. Yeah. And when I was writing it, suddenly Lance had um, slept with his girlfriend. Lance is his best friend. And I, did, I didn't see that coming, you know, that came out of nowhere while I was writing, while I was improvising. So when you're improvising that way, it, 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 you have to fight yourself out of a corner because you put, you've been pushed in one way and then like, I'm going, oh, okay, right. Now, what, what, what's Matthew going to do? And so all comes out, all comes out as, as you're trying to correct or trying to push this situation around, in, mm. you know, just by improvising. And so the first story was, was the last story that I wrote that was, um, uh, that was a, a babe to die for. After I finished writing that one, I thought it worked so well that I'm going to carry on writing the other three like that. The interrogation was a story that I already wrote because that was the first short I, sh- I shot. Mm-hmm. And I reshot it for the movie. Got you. So, so, so that was kind, of almost, it was kind of already written, but I kind of improved on it. And then the, 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 the second story was an, it was an action tour. It, was, it had act, more action in it than the other two. And I wrote that one as well, uh, the same way I wrote the first story. And then once you had the three stories together, you can, you, when you look at it, all three stories together, you can move things around like, um, and you can make them all connect. Like, for instance, the woman in Black's gun doesn't work when... Um, oh, so, oh, no, let's, 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 let's go back a bit. Okay, so the two guys that... Um, uh, uh, the two uh, people that were interrogated, they meet these two guys in a cafeteria to buy guns off them. Right. And one of them says, I sold this gun to this woman and it wasn't, it, it doesn't work well, but she loves it. She loves the unpredictability of the weapon. So when I wrote that, when I went back to my first story and I thought that'd be really good if he's trying to shoot Lance and the gun's not working, you know? And, mm. and so I, I, I implemented that bit that what he said into the story of the last story. And then I had to implement that into the story of the second, the second story, because it was the woman in black who beats up all the men in the second story. That was the gun that they sold to her. And then, um, I got those two fellas that was in the, in the cafeteria meet Matthew at the ending, uh, in the last story. And that connects to why, um, uh, what you call it? Kerry, who is played by Nicholas Stapleton's character, is with, um, is with the main character. You understand? I'm saying once you've written a story, mm. you can change them to connect to each other, and you could, you could, you could, you think move things around. I certainly do know what you're saying. Better. I certainly do know what you're Sorry? saying because you can, you create, you create your own setups and payoffs, and suddenly you're beginning to find answers to questions you didn't even know you were asking yourself. But the, ans- right. the answers become solutions to your story. So, like you say, the woman in black. And the conversation over the gun 
becomes a continuity thing and it becomes a, a mm-hmm. thing to actually highlight as opposed to, I guess, in your mind originally, it's just, well, this is some backstory for me to understand about what's going on. And then, yeah. then, it, then it just mushroomed into something much more important. Also, as when I wrote, you know, when I wrote the interrogation and he meets the Yardies at the ending, mm. I remember everybody was saying to me, I remember when I was writing the Yardies, um, um, I got a lot of black friends and they were saying, no, they're not talking, you know, they're not talking like Yardies. And I'm like, well, that is just, you know, that's one of the things. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions. Same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. I changed because I, 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 my friend Eddie, who played the head yardy, he was talking very plain. Mm. And I was, saying to the, I was saying to him, look, you know, <laughs> we don't want to go down that road. We, you know, we want we want this film to be different. We want the 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 people in the movie to be different to what you see in movies. Like, um, I think, I think I was one of the because where I live, I live in Battersea, right? I live in, I live in a, a council estate. Yeah. So when I was growing up, there were people, um, white people that spoke like black people around, and I knew a lot of them. And so, um, I had the character called um. Uh, Iron Jaw and uh, I can't remember. <laughs> it's, uh, um, those two characters. I had those two characters speak like black people, and yeah. I, I don't know whether I was before um, uh, the Tarantino movie or after the Tarantino movie. But I, I never knew that he did that. You mean you mean the Gar- you mean the Gary Oldman character in True Romance? Yeah, 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 exactly. That was early nineties. So I, I right. So maybe he did. He obviously, he did it before me. But I, I, I never saw that film until later on in my life. I, I said I grew up with people like that. You know, that would speak that way. You know, they'd even say the N word, and you'd think, well, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the yeah, white, yeah. You know what I mean? So, um, so yeah. So those 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 kind of characters that was in my movie. But most of it, like for instance, getting a gun. They used to have a toilet in um, Clapham Junction, in the middle of uh, of the of the road, and they shut it down because we heard that um, they were selling guns in there. So basically, what you do is you go in the loo, and you remember the um, uh, the, the the bowls they used to have used, used to have this bigger uh, um, thing, and it used to be right at the top. The, I think it's the system used to be right at the top, and that's where they used to hide. That's where they used to hide the guns. You had to wrap them in plastic and put them in there. Oh, so wow. when you brought a gun, you'd go to the toilet, go up there, open the system, take out the gun. And there was a lot of that happening around when I was growing up. Blimey. And they obviously closed closed the loo down because that was what happening. And that's where I got the idea for them buying guns and stuff like that. And and so and also another another fact that um uh, sorry, we're talking about scripts, so I was about to bounce. Um so so that's the way I approach um, writing the killing zone, I approached it in such a way that I was improvising along the way with with each story. 
I, I still do improvise, but I, but now I, I have a structure of where I'm going. And within the structure, I improvise along the way. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, improvise. I mean, I mean, I think that's, I think that's every, you're almost describing everyone's learning curve is that mm. th- there's a certain energy you can bring to writing when you naively don't really know the rules as such that yeah. can get you so far, but it's hard to replicate. Mm. Whereas adding process to it, like you would pro- do add process to it, because obviously you can accidentally get a great shot, but you can, o- you can never replicate it. So it's always better to know how you got the shot or how you got to a, how a process got you to a solution in a story so you can replicate it. And I think that's where we, where but we, also, we grow. Right. Writing, writing characters as well. Um, I, I deliberately wrote almost every character um, worth playing because I remember somebody told me a long time ago that you know um, I was I was talking to one actor and he was saying yeah I'm in this film and he's like yeah I've only got one part in there blink and you miss me and stuff like that and so I was thinking to myself well okay if I have characters in this film they're gonna there's gonna be a reason why they're there all of them. Mm. And so that's what I uh, set out to do. Every character had a reason to be there, even, no matter how long they were w- in, within the film. So you let know, me let me um, let me jump into the production challenges. Um, mm-hmm. And I want to. There's two things I really want to focus on. And you've already mentioned yep. the once the woman in black, mm-hmm. which is a, which is obviously a frenetic sequence and very technical sequence at that. So do you yep. want do you want to talk through how? When you've got you're on a right, you're on a micro budget, and you're up against the clock, you can mm. choreograph and coordinate a, 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 a fight scene amongst multiple people. Um, well, we did all of that before we set foot on the set. So basically, we we uh, we did rehearsals with that mm-hmm. in, um, in, a, in another location. So we had a, um, a stunt guy named Dave Judge. Yeah. He's a brilliant stuntman. In fact, he's he's one of the people from the production that's really gone far. He's worked on Game of Thrones. He's worked on so many big productions. He was actually in Quantum of Solace. He gets beaten up in the lift by James oh, Bond. Wow. wow. So Dave Judge is a really good friend of mine, and he was just starting out. And um, so him and um, another guy he was working with at the time, we um, got all the actors together and we got Melissa, who plays the woman in black, and we rehearsed that fight. We rehearsed the fight for, I think it was two days, to make sure everybody knew what was going on. And because we had access to the building that we were shooting in, we had access to, I think it was the, the fifth, fifth floor, which was the top floor and the third floor. While we were shooting stuff with Palmer, um, going down the corridor and shooting people, we had um, Dave Judge came in and he took those actors upstairs on the location where they were going to fight and rehearsed again with them because we were going to do it the next day. Fantastic. So, you know, so, so yeah. So you've got, you got to think about these things because if you don't, then on the day you'll be trying to figure out what, you know, what, what you're doing. Plus we had, um, we had two cameras on the day. We had two Super 16 cameras on the day to try and uh, shoot that as fast as we can. But also, I don't know if you've noticed that when the fight starts, the camera is at um, head height. But then as it keeps going, the camera is looking up towards everybody. And the reason being... <laughs> Go on, tell us. Is that, the reason being is that if you look at the set that we're, we're on, or the location we're on, there are windows left to right, big windows. Yeah, you're, on, you're in a big office, aren't you? A big old yeah, abandoned yeah. office, really, aren't you? Right, yeah. So there are big windows. But, right, we only had... Uh, a day to shoot it. 
So the light will dispense. So that's the reason why towards the end of the fight, the, the camera's looking up at everybody because we were trying to avoid the windows. <laughs> oh, wow. It was dark outside. So, and we had, the, we had these lights so we can, um, my DOP lit it in such a way that it looks like the light was coming from, uh, you know, the, the daylight was coming from, from the windows. So, you know, that we, we, you know, we actually thought about these things, how to cheat. I mean, I think my DOP came up with the idea, let's just move the camera down, you know, and avoid the windows and stuff like that. Um, we shot them coming in because that's a wide shot and mm. you can see all the windows. And when she's leaving, uh, we shot that at the same time. And then everything else we shot, we kept shooting until obviously the lights went down. And, 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 uh, Out of yeah, interest, and, and, did, did, did Melissa mm. Simonetti, did she, Simonetti, yeah. did she get the role because she was able to handle herself in a fight or was that something she learned no, for the role? No, no, she didn't know any martial arts at all. Wow, that's, um, uh, I, feel, I feel like I've been duped. <laughs> she was very convincing. She, uh, yeah, she she didn't know any, but she uh, you know um, thing is that when we when we because we had auditions when we saw when I saw Melissa hmm. right, I just thought to myself that girl looks hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. she looks hard, <laughs> you know. And she was and she was much more threatening than any other actress that came in to play that part. Hmm. And um, she's very, I don't I don't I don't think she's Italian, but she has that very Italian hard look, you know. Hmm. And also. As a person, I love Melissa. She's like a really good friend of mine. When she hugs you, she hugs you. She squeezes you, you know. Okay. And it's not deliberate either. You know, you, it's that kind of woman. Do you know what I mean? She's you know, you've been, you know you've been hugged. Yeah, yeah. She's quite strong. And I saw that in her when she was doing the rehearsals. Sorry, uh, the auditions. Mm. And so it was, it, was, it, was very, it was a very easy choice for me. And plus, um, when we were rehearsing, it was obvious that she... She took to throwing punches very, very fast. Um, and uh, she actually she actually smacked her hand on the floor in rehearsal. She had to be taken to the hospital oh, at blimey. one point. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> so uh, yeah. So, um, but she was okay, though. She was fine. Um, but, yeah. So, when we were doing rehearsal, she was really, she was really giving it a, a, a good go and everybody else. No, it, was, com it, com it comes across as a really genuine fight. So, yeah. So, hats off to her if she's not got a... If she doesn't already have a background in martial arts to start with, um, yeah. From a from a from a, an aesthetic point of view, um, I'm, mm. a, I'm one of my big one of my big lockdown discoveries. I mean, it's not a discovery for the world, just for me, has been to go back over classic film noir. I think I was I was always a fan of sort of modern noir, um, mm. but I, but I've, I I went back and retraced the sort of origins of it, sort of Kiss Me Deadly, that kind of thing, and Touch of Evil. Mm. Um, and I was really, I was really impressed with, um, with your sort of your nod to, to the look and feel of film noir. You know, you use, there's a lot of people who come into rooms and we got that kind of either mid or close up shot of the actor's mm. response. It really doesn't matter what they're looking at in some senses, because that would cost money to produce. And I think that's what a lot of the noir films did back in the day for the same reason, or it wasn't possible to produce it. So everything's reliant on the, the actor's performance in terms of how they, how horrified they are, how shocked they are, how frightened they are, or whatever it might be. Yeah. But also, you do the very stylistic decision of sort of aping within color the um, what do you call it, the Kia Kia Scuro of the, the 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 sort of blacks, you know, the hard blacks and the hard whites. And then we mm. get those lovely scenes where you've got the light coming in through the slatted window 
and people are stripped yeah. in light and stuff. What was what was your thinking there? Was that literally your like I'm doing a homage to, or was it something you discussed with Alan Dunlop as your cinematographer and and how it might work for the film? No, we discussed it. We discussed it, and mm. um, we were trying to get that tone. I don't think we achieved it personally. We're trying to get there's a special there's a there's an incredible tone in the Ipocris Fire, which, as I said, one of my favorite mm. movies. Um, and the way they lit it was very hard, um, harsh light. Mm. Um, but um, we also wanted a lot of color in, and we also in the movie we also wanted each story to have a different color palette. Okay. So the first, so the 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 the, the bit in the beginning in um, in the pub. Um, which is a place called Janet's Planet, which doesn't exist anymore. There was a lot of color in that. It was red. Um, there was a, there was yellow um, and stuff like that. So that was that was very colorful. Then when you get to the interrogation, which is the first story, everything is kind of blue because it was meant to be imitating the dread of the situation. Okay, that's interesting. Um, yeah, so the the dread of 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 these two hapless um, criminals. That were in trouble with the with with the with the syndicate more or less, and um, that was the first day we saw um, Podrick, who Padrick, who played um, uh, uh, Matthew Palmer, in his costume, and I almost fell off my chair because it was exactly the way I imagined it. Oh wow! <laughs> and he turned so, up in his costume so cool. and his and his uh, coat and stuff like that. Yeah. So um, yeah. So so and the second story, the second story was the one that suffered because we didn't have enough lights to light that properly uh, okay. so we had to light it the way we could get away with it so there's a scene in it there's a scene in it where um in the second story because there's there's two there's there's two stories in the second story there's one with the politician that um, matthew he was there to kill mm-hmm. and then there's the second the second story um uh, actually there's three stories <laughs> um so matthew's there to kill the politician with the help of another assassin who warns him uh, in, on the telephone um, and the other story is um, the politician's wife that comes in and finds that he's having an affair so there were kind of three stories within it but we didn't have enough light to light it in such a way that it would look good I mean out of all three stories I think that one was the, the one that suffered the most when it comes to lighting it didn't look too bad, but it could have been a but, whole I mean, I'm, lot I'm, better. But I'm, I guess I'm just coming from a kind of fanboy point of view. Is that I admired mm. your uh, your kind of nod to the classic noir, you know, because obviously your yeah. your story is a heightened version of what it's like to live in the shadows of what goes. You know, people in normal mm. walks of life don't cross paths with Matthew Palmer. They don't, no. you know, even <laughs> though they might well have had a drink in the jazz bar that he plays yeah. in, but they're not going to cross him in a kind of ill way. So no. Once you get into that realm of we're following a guy who is, who is living, who's living life the wrong side of the tracks, then everybody who he drags into his life ends up becoming on the wrong side of the tracks, as it were. Um, yeah. Or the kind of people you mix with are already there anyway. So I just like that idea, you know, because it's, 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 a, it's a very stylistic choice. It's not necessarily story critical. It's just of that oeuvre, it, it made sense to see, it, see, see the, little, the little scene shot that way. Um, mm. When you... When you got to the edit of, uh, so when you got this film in the can and you got to the edit, mm. um, what was, because, you know, they, they, they say you write it, you shoot it, and then you edit it. You know, there's the basically three, the three big stepping stones of writing in a way. We can talk about how you wrote it, but actually 
when you get into the edit, there's a whole other discovery to make, isn't there? So in terms of what you saw on the page and then what you saw in the can, as it were, what were, was there any significant changes you had to make in the edit that, 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 that deviated from what was on the page when you shot it? None. None whatsoever. The reason why is because we shot what we needed hmm. because of time okay. and money and also the, the lack of Super 16 film. We, know we, we knew we could only go two takes, three takes. I think the most we went was seven takes at one point. Right. So, you know, in those days, you know, you, you're talking about real film, talking about 16 mil, you're talking about if there's a hair in the gate, you're shooting again. Do you know yes, what I mean? Course, so yeah. my, my, my camera crew was re like the camera, Cliff Harden, who was on camera, he was a phenomenal cameraman. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew that, you know, he, he basically cleaned that, that, um, yeah, that, that, uh, that, as you call it, Iris out. Now, every time we took a shot, him and um, a, a guy named Wavy, they were brilliant. Uh, Wavy was focus pulling um, and uh, Cliff was on camera and they knew exactly what they were doing. They knew what lenses they wanted and stuff like together with the DLP. So they, they were they, they, they were kind of... Um, they, they, I always say to people, it's the triangle at the top. If you want to make a low-budget film, you've got to have the triangle at the top. The triangle is the director, the camera person, and the DOP. If mm. those people are experienced, everyone, everyone below that line um, of various experiences, it can work. And, and I've done that like three times already, and it's always worked. So I knew what I was doing to a certain degree. Alan definitely knew what he was doing. Cliff definitely knew what he was doing. And, uh, and, and, and uh, me and Julian were learning about how to produce and how to wrangle crew and stuff like mm. that. So, um, so yeah, so it, 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 does, it does work. It really does work if you think that way. Plus, we, you know, plus we, were, we were kids and, you know, we were determined. <laughs> I mean, what, what, so. I, and being determined, obviously, is, is going to be, is, is, like you said at the start, is, is, is a key factor anyway. Why, why, mm. why, why Super 16? Why not digital video? I mean, obviously, we, we, we think back there to this There wasn't time. digital video at the time. Was it not already around 1990? Nope, nope, not at all. I was thinking, about... I'm thinking 28 Days Later is what, 2002, isn't it? Yes. So we're talking about uh, 19, we, 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 start, we started, I started writing 1997. Right, 98, okay. we shot the film. 99, it came out. So Super uh, 6, so in DVD. a way, in retrospect... Looking mm. back now, as we talk to an audience today, the reason for Super 16 was that would have been what the, the most cost-effective colour film stock you could have chose to use? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, we couldn't shoot it on 35 because it, yeah, that was just too much. Yeah. Uh, we, got, we, should, we got Super 16 film um, and it was, uh, it was short ends. Some of it was short ends. Most of it was new. Hmm. You know, um, and also you couldn't see the rushes either. So once everything was shot, you know, you'd they'd tape up, you know, they'd get the film out, put it on the spool and run it to, so it can go to the baths and get cleaned and wow. and stuff like that. And we never, we never saw any of the rushes at all until, you know, it came to us, you know, because at, at, that, that, at that time it'd go through the telly city and it'd get cleaned, you know, and, and stuff like that. And, you know, um, wet wash, I think it was called wet wash or something like that. I can't remember such mm. a long time ago. But yeah, so we had to we had to rely on we had to believe that everything we shot was shot um, well. <laughs> you know. Well, so, look, yeah. let me let me ask you one last question, Ian. What given mm. given this was such an, an amazing achievement to get this all done with all yeah. the people you got, you managed to 
get to be involved and collaborate with you. Do you want to share with us mm. a kind of one of your fondest memories of shooting uh, The Killing Zone? Uh, <laughs> one of the fondest memories. Um, well, the thing, the thing is, though, it was a nightmare shooting the movie. It really was. I mean, mm. you know, as I said, you know, me, Gavin, you know, Gavin's my first, and, uh, the members of the 712, you know, there were, there were a few arguments here and there, you know, and people were losing faith along the way. But, um, you know, we, we, we stuck with it. But I guess, I guess the, only, the only good thing I can remember about it, um, once it was all edited and stuff like this, we had a screening at the BFI um, and projecting it via video, of course. Mm. And um, once the film started um, and the response we got from the film was amazing. It was like everything we every every problem we went through everything that we did all the problems that we had all the stupid people that tried stopping us from making it yeah it was all worth it because the audience response to the film was just amazing and i don't say that lightly it was we were convinced that somebody would pick this film up and you know and uh, and uh, take it you know and and put it out on 35 and put it in cinemas because the response was so good. People laughed at every joke. People, um, you know, uh, gasped at every, especially when Palmer gets shot towards the ending accidentally via um, Lance and uh, Carrie. Mm. You know, they gasped, you know, they, they, you know, they laughed. And the film worked. Um, and it really worked really well. Let's remind people then, they can watch The Killing Zone on YouTube. Um, and I'll yep. put a link in the show notes for people. Uh, do you mm -hmm. do you want to talk about anything you've got going on at the moment? Anything you want to tell us? I'm shoot. I, I shot a, a web series, a really successful web series, and it won loads of awards and stuff. And what's Rebecca that called? Gold. Rebecca Gold. Rebecca Gold is yeah. called. Yeah, and um, again, it's about someone who kills people. <laughs> um, I'm spotting a and, theme. Uh, there, I'm, I'm I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's easier to write what you know, I guess. Um, and uh, you know this. Uh, uh, I'm going to be shooting season two next year, hopefully. Um, you know, without help of anybody, obviously, again. Um, and again, and, and so uh, again, yeah. is that available for people to get via YouTube? Yeah, uh, it's the Rebecca Gold channel that Killing Zone's on, so you can okay. watch Rebecca Gold. Rebecca Gold's only 35 minutes long. It's it's um, it's a web series. It's five uh, five parts. Most most the longest part is nine minutes. Okay. The rest of them are five, seven minutes, whatever. You can watch it all together as one short film, or you can watch them all together as each episode. Mm. And it, it's a very successful web series. Obviously, millions haven't watched it, but you know the amount of awards that we we won through the festivals has told us that people appreciate what we've done. So again, that was shot with with hardly very little money, and you know, and uh, uh, nobody got paid, and you know, for the love of it and stuff like that. And it's far more easy to shoot stuff like that on digital rather than film. And so, yeah, so the, you know, Rebecca Gold's on there. Also, a film that I was hired to direct, um, Fallen Angels, which is a cheesy slasher movie that I got hired to direct yeah. a long time ago. It stars Michael Ironside and Jeff Fahey, um, is on that channel as well. So you can watch that um, if you want to. That, that, that was not my film. That, I was just a hired gun on that. Me and Julian were just hired to. <laughs> it was yeah. a co-Canadian, co-English movie. But we had a lot of fun. We, and again, 
you, you always learn. It doesn't matter what you do. You always learn when you're making stuff like this. You learn. And that's the whole point is if you don't have any money and you don't think you can do something, you can. Believe me, you can. And the whole point of making something is so that you can learn. And the more you learn, the better you'll get at it. Well, look, well, thank you very much for sharing your experience and the journey you went on with The Killing Zone. It just gives me to say thank you very much. No it gives you time on the Britflix podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.